Good morning, church. Uh, I'm Peter Casey, and today we will be reading from Matthew 17, 1 through 23, which can be found on pages 822 in the Pew Bible. Again, that's Matthew 17, 1 through 23. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah, talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, is it good that we are here? If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise, and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. And the disciples understood what he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the boy was healed instantly. And he said to them, Because of faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. And as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man, they killed him. The third day, they were all greatly distressed. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us one more time. Father, thanks for this moment now where we get to hear the words of your Son. We get to experience the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We get to be reminded of who you are and what you've done for us. We ask that you would open up our hearts, open up our minds. Would you grant faith in the room? Help us to believe. Help us be honest about where we struggle to believe. And would you meet us in all those places? Uh, We're grateful for what the Son has done how he explained to us why he was doing it. Um, And now would you now help us apply it to our hearts. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, if I haven't met, my name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors. Uh, It's really good to be with you. This, by way of hospitality, just a quick summary of where we've been. We're in the Gospel of Matthew, which if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, there are four Gospels at the beginning of the New Testament. It's the story of Jesus and really what he's done what he taught, and how that lines up with the way the Old Testament told us God was going to come and send a deliverer. So you have two parts of the Bible, this Old Testament part that is the prediction of the way God was going to make everything well and right and new and good and restore everything, 
in the New Testament where Jesus comes and actually is the fulfillment of that promise. And Matthew in so many ways is making effort to tell the story of Jesus both historically accurate and theologically focused so that we can see over and over again what Jesus is, uh, what he's done, who he is, what he promised, and how that fits into the Old Testament. And so as we come now to kind of the middle of the book, we've been seeing Jesus teach, we've been watching him do miracles, we've been seeing editorial comments of, hey, and this is the fulfillment of the things of the Old Testament. We're getting to a spot now where Jesus is being really clear about his mission. Not just that he come to keep some promises and do some things and cast out some demons and do some miracles. He came to actually die in our place. What we're watching now in this section in chapter 16 and 17 is the disciples have been on board with Jesus' mission to come and restore and renew, but they're struggling with his clear declaration that he came to actually die. And so we actually have two kind of sections that I think form like a, a sandwich here for us between what we see at the end of chapter 16 where Jesus says he's going to die and then the last couple of verses that we read here in chapter 17 where he says it again. So if you can just imagine then, Jesus is like going out of his way to be really clear about the kind of Messiah that he is. And what you watch is his disciples are struggling with that, which gives us permission just to be honest about how we struggle to both believe what God has told us, how we struggle to believe that we need what he says that we need, how we struggle to actually connect some dots of our lives and what we see happening around us. And we often have this question of how does this fit together? And the disciples are asking that question very much. We see Peter make some amazing declarations in chapter 16 about Jesus actually being the promised one. He just nails it, gets the right answer, and says, Jesus, you're the one that we were all looking for. You're the one who was the promised one. You're the one who's the fulfillment of what God said was going to happen. And then as Jesus says, great answer, that's the correct answer, let me tell you how that's going to happen, he begins to resist it. He actually says, no, that's not the way it's going to go down, which is pretty challenging in that moment. And we just looked last week at, at our own like, ability, at our own um, problem with, our own temptation to hear what God says and then run it through the grid of our own expectations. And we kind of said in a nanosecond, we just kind of are constantly making evaluations of like a cost-benefit analysis of if we were to hold on to that, what is that going to mean for me? And every, everything about your life actually is driven by desire and an ability to say, is this worth it for me? And so with God, there's no difference in that space. You're always asking, is, is obedience to this command worth it to me? Should I actually hold on to this promise of that be worth it for me? Is the suffering that would be kind of a part of this worth it for me? You're always asking what, what's uh, happening in that moment and is it, is it worth it? And I used this illustration of kind of a return on investment last week and I actually got in my car and I went, okay, let me just clarify one, one thing about that. Every illustration breaks down at lots of levels. Um, here's one place where that one breaks down. When we talk about us kind of a, looking at God and asking, is there a good ROI here in this relationship? It can subtly communicate to you that you're in the driver's seat, that you stand outside over God and you have the ability to kind of measure and weigh him and decide whether or not he's worth your time. And every illustration breaks down. If that's where your mind went, that's a massive breakdown to that illustration. I set us up to go, hey, am I actually in the driver's seat here? And to the degree that maybe that was a temptation, this passage just blows that up and says, oh, no, no, this is the one who's actually the glorious king of the universe. If you were tempted to think, hey, we stand outside and we're doing profit-loss questions, 
Now when we come to the transfiguration passage and we see Jesus clearly for who he is, we're confronted with the idea that this is not just somebody that we can take his teaching or leave it. This is God himself. To stand in front of him and uh, evaluate him is not to ask, is he worth it? It's to say, is my life in line with what he's teaching and what he's saying? So I just want to like put it in front of us. I think you're still making that cost-benefit analysis, but you're not doing it as the one who's in the driver's seat. You're doing it as one who's actually really dependent, which I think are the kind of two points I want to make this morning. One is about the glory of Jesus, and the other one is about our dependence. So in the structure of this passage, let me just kind of frame it for you. Look with me at verse 16, starting in verse 21, where we were last week. Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Jesus says, here's my mission. And then if you jump to chapter 17, verses 22 and 23, you see the same thing again. And as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and he'll be raised on the third day. So, so now imagine with me a theological sandwich. These are the two ends of the bread. What you have is book-ended declarations, very, very clear, so that we don't miss it about who Jesus is and what he came to do. So those are the bookends of this section. And actually, maybe you could say it's like a club sandwich where there's one more piece of bread, like in verses 9 and 10, where he says again that he's going to die. So you have a club sandwich with declarations of his death, one more sneaking in here in verse 9, and then the two parts of the meat are one, the transfiguration, and the other one is this, what we might call a failed healing story of the disciples. It's not a fail on Jesus' part. He cast out this demon, but his disciples kind of struggle to actually follow Jesus. So you have these declarations of his death, you have the glorification we see in the transfiguration, and the dependence. And I think all that functions together because I think as you wrestle with who Jesus is and what he came to do for us, and you're asking, is this actually the Savior of the world? Hearing that he is God and he's transfigured, that he's glorious, that he, he's like no other being in the universe is actually really good news for you when you wonder, how can I follow him? Because his declaration of his own death then turns in verse 24 of chapter 16 to the fact that we have to die. So it's not just what he's going to do, it is, it is the way of his followers to actually, in verse 24, to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and to follow after him. And if you take that seriously, you should be in a space where you're going like, I don't know if I can do that. One, I may not even know who I am, let alone know what it means to die to myself. Jesus is demanding not just that we agree to his ideas or that we follow his teachings, but that we follow him all the way to his death. And I think in that space, you're left going like, can I, can I do that? Like, what would that actually mean for me? What would be left if I were to do that? So enter in that first part of the sandwich then to see the one who's calling you to this is the glorious God of the universe. His glory gives you hope is the first point I want to make. And then as we kind of walk through it and we'll see the dependence of disciples, I think our understanding of our dependence becomes our advantage. His glory is hope for us and our dependence is actually an advantage. Those are the two points that I want to make this morning because we're wrestling with what it means to follow Jesus. What does it mean to deny ourselves? What does it mean to take up our cross? What does it mean to actually die to who I am. We've said the followers of Jesus, they love what Jesus loves, they do what Jesus did, and they trust what he taught. 
And in this moment, this teaching is like an all-encompassing, comprehensive thing to say, if you want to follow me, you die to everything about you. I actually wrestled with application last week going, this is just so comprehensive. It's everything. It's your job. It's your relationships. It's your body. It's your future. It's your past. It's how you see everything to come and die to yourself covers over all of who you are. And Jesus is saying, I want all of that. To follow me is to die to all of that. To actually put yourself in a space where you see your only hope is actually to align yourself with the death of Jesus is what it means to be his follower. And to the degree you're going like, man, that's hard. The next scene gives us a ton of hope because the God who said this is actually glorious. Look with me in chapter 17. This first half of this club sandwich. And there's a ton of allusions here to the Old Testament. You might just want to write down Exodus 24. There's a lot of things going on early on in this little scene that is a callback to things we saw with Moses. But he says this, after six days, Jesus takes them up, Peter and James and John. They leads them up to this high mountain by themselves. And so that six days and these three companions matches what we see in Exodus 24. And he's transfigured before them, which means be changed, or, or actually it's the word we get our, our word metamorphosed from. Jesus is actually transfigured in such a way that he actually is, is seen more real of what he really is. Like the, the veil's torn back just a little bit, and it says that his face shines like the sun. And his clothes become bright white. So, so we see Jesus as he like really is, or at least a foretaste of what that will be. There's other passages that say the followers of Jesus will shine like the sun as well. I think he's pointing to what it will be like in the next life after the glorification when this flesh actually has been fully healed and things are restored. What will it be like? This transfiguration is a, a kind of metamorphosis or a change. And it says that Jesus just shines brightly. And behold, there appear with him two other people, Moses and Elijah, and they're talking with him. And I take that to mean these guys represent the law and the prophets. So here's Jesus being transformed. It's blowing their minds. And they're wondering, what's he like? And for God to have Moses and Elijah come and stand next to him is to say, this is the one who's in line with what we've always heard in the law and in the prophets. Jesus is doing something brand new in fulfillment of what was old. He's showing us something we've never seen before, and he's doing it in a way that's in keeping with the law and the prophets. And so they're talking with him. It's an amazing scene. You can just imagine Peter, James, and John watching this. It would be blowing their minds the way, actually, if you can even kind of comprehend what that would be like, the searing heat of that, what it's doing to your eyes, what it's doing to your mind as you try to take all of this in. And then we see Peter, who kind of is the one who often speaks up for the disciples, just kind of throws out an idea. And Peter says in verse 4, Lord, this is good. It's good that we're here. This is a, an amazing thing, right? A massive understatement. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. It seems like a random idea. There's Old Testament references, though, to like booths and tabernacles where we would like set up tents and camp out for a moment to think about God. I think that's probably what Peter has in his mind, but he's essentially saying, hey, I think we should stay here. Now, remember what happened in the last scene. Jesus says to Peter, hey, I'm going to die. And Peter rebukes him and says, no, you're not. So I think Peter's still wrestling with that idea. The next scene is this transfiguration. So now they go up on this mountain. And you can almost imagine Peter going, aha, I knew it. There was a way to have glorification 
without that suffering. Here we are. I mean, I told Jesus it wouldn't have to happen like that. I told him he didn't have to actually have to suffer. Here we are in this space, Jesus being glorified and nobody's died yet. This is amazing. What if we just stood right here and stayed here? What if we just stayed at the glorification and skipped altogether all that suffering that Jesus talked about? And the way of the scriptures is that you only get glorification through suffering. And Jesus is the example of that. And actually, these two bookends of this little comedic sandwich that we're throwing out are the point of all of Scripture, that Jesus was going to come and die. It's always been that way. The center of the story is death. There is no glorification without death. Like a seed has to die so it can become alive. You have to die to yourself, it says in chapter 16, so you can actually live. The death has to happen before the glorification could happen. But here's Peter, who's struggling just to make sense of all of this. He loves Jesus. He's heard Jesus teach. Jesus has affirmed so much of what he's doing. And he keeps kind of missing the point that Jesus is making. And here would be another one. Hey, couldn't we just stay right here? Couldn't we just camp out in this moment and just receive the beauty and goodness and glory of this moment? Uh, it's like a child who's given a present and like stops at the wrapping paper. Like, I noticed already stores are carrying Christmas stuff, which we haven't even, like, we just barely got into October, right? So, so we're already looking forward to these presents. Remember, moms and dads, or maybe when you were a kid, like, you get this bright-colored box, and, like, in some ways, for, like, a two-year-old, that's enough. This thing is amazing. It's got bows on it. It's pretty paper. Sometimes kids just want to stop at the box. Or maybe if they're a little bit younger, they don't even notice that they open it up and they're content not to put the whole thing together, but just to like suck on one piece of the toy. Like that's enough. I could just suck on this one part of the thing before you even put it together. That would be enough. Do we have a temptation just to stop short and say, wouldn't this just be enough? Couldn't we just stop like right here and take this in? And what Jesus kind of shows us and what the voice of the Father actually says to us is, oh no, no, you have to, have to go all the way to this death. The simple moment here actually wouldn't be enough because it would leave you dead in your sins. To have God just glorify Himself without there being a sacrifice for your sins would actually alienate you from Him. It would put you in a place where you were distant from Him. And far from meeting all of your needs and satisfying what's in your heart, it would actually be the thing that would bring about judgment to you because that's we can't stand in the presence of a holy God. He has to actually go all the way to die in our place. So, so it says in this text, and while Peter's throwing this out, while he's talking about this in verse 5, while he's still speaking, God the Father cuts him off. Which I don't think he's being rude. I think he's being loving. I think when God interrupts us when we're wrong, he's actually really loving us. So the Father speaks from this cloud. And if you were with us early on in Matthew, you would think about the baptism scene. The voice comes out of heaven and says, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. It's exactly what he said in Matthew chapter 3 at the baptism. The father in supernatural ways validating his son, the ministry of his son, so that we go, man, this is the one that was promised. But there's something that's added to this beyond the baptism. He says, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. And then he says, listen to him. Now, that's always like good advice to listen to Jesus. I think we should listen to everything that he's taught, right? Disciples love what Jesus loved. They do what he did. They, they trust what he taught. But in this particular moment, I think actually the Father is saying, hey, listen to what my son told you about this idea of the need for death. 
about the idea that he was going to go all the way and die on the cross? Would you listen to what is the good news of the gospel? These two bookends summarize for us, again, the good news of Christianity, that there is a Savior who died in our place to make a way for us to be forgiven and free. And the Father says, hey, listen to him. What he's telling you are the words of life. What he's telling you are how you can be saved. What he's telling you are are true things that would actually radically change you. Way past just this moment, to not settle just for glorification, to go all the way through suffering so that you can experience the forgiveness and grace of God. Listen to him, it says. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and they were terrified, which you would just imagine. Go from this bright, shining light to this voice out of the cloud. This is a miraculous, overwhelming scene. And then while they're terrified, faces on the ground, eyes closed, no doubt, Jesus comes and he touches them and says to them, rise up and have no fear. What a comforting word from Jesus in the middle of this overwhelming moment to touch them, tell them to stand up, have no fear. When they lifted up their eyes, it says they saw nobody except for Jesus. This text gives us a beautiful, undeniable declaration that Jesus really was God himself. He's not just a teacher. He's not just a prophet. He's not just one who's holy that we should emulate his example. He is God's son, the one who actually has the power to die in our place. And the father is validating his witness in glorious ways. And the glory of the son in this moment would give you hope that the one calling you to die to yourself has what you need to sustain you. Has what you need to actually rescue and save you. The one who calls you to die to yourself and empty yourself is glorious enough to actually give you hope when you feel overwhelmed. Because the thought of self-denial, the thought of emptying yourself, the thought of giving up everything to follow Jesus, we'll see throughout the New Testament and in your own life, is just an overwhelming call. So to stop and say the one who's calling you is the glorious one. And if what's happening on this mountain is real and true, then surely he has what you need. The one who can do this, the one who experiences the one who who shows this, has the kind of power to give you what you need. The the glory of Jesus in this moment gives you hope as you seek to follow him and die to yourself. Maybe last week as you wrestled with this call to, to die to yourself, you needed just something to anchor that in. And the next story here actually gives us a really firm, miraculous foundation to sit on. Okay, so as they leave that mountain scene... Now they're going to come down the mountain. And I imagine Peter's still trying to work some stuff out in his head. Verse 9, it says, And they were coming down the mountain. Jesus commanded them again, Hey, tell no one about this vision until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. You won't fully understand this until the resurrection happens, where they'll see Jesus again glorified like this. When he's actually going to rise up into the heavens in that space, the resurrection is what makes this death declaration actually makes sense that there is new life after death there's so much going on in that little sentence but as they're coming on the mountain and jesus says this to them hey don't talk about this yet because you're going to misunderstand remember when peter says you're the christ and he cautions him not to tell anybody we saw last week why because because peter still didn't understand what it meant for him to be the messiah in this moment he's saying hey this whole glorification scene as well it's not enough just to be on that mountain in this miraculous moment you can't stay there what you need is me to actually die and be raised that will make all of this make sense once that's happened then go tell everybody and the disciples then they ask him then why do the scribes say first that elijah must come 
Okay, I think that strikes as kind of odd. If you're in that moment, it seems like maybe a, a change of pace, except for the reference to Elijah, and you see Elijah earlier up in the text. But, but to stop and like go with him, why is Elijah promised if we're actually supposed to die? What are we doing with all this? I think Peter is trying to work things out in his head. He's declared that Christ um, is the Messiah, that he's the one who was promised. He's been rebuked in that space when he said you won't actually die. He's up on this mountain seeing these glorious things. He's told he actually can't stay there. And he's trying to work a ton of stuff out. I think there's, it's the kind of way like a long walk down a mountain gives you some time to actually think through some things. I laughed this week thinking about just a month ago or so. We went with several men from our church and some guys from other places and climbed a 14er in Colorado. We went up to, I think it was the second tallest one in Colorado, which thank you very much for that. And as we were coming down, some of us got to enjoy the mountain longer than others because it took them a little bit longer to get down the mountain. So uh, on the huskier side, I took quite a bit of time coming down the mountain. There were a couple guys with me, one with a bum knee and one with a bummed foot. So I felt like right at home. I was like no injuries, but still very, very slow. As we came down the mountain, we got to talk literally for hours. So we talked marriage, we talked parenting, we talked jobs, we talked church, we talked future, we talked past. We talked about a ton of stuff. So I imagine in this moment as they're walking down the mountain, Peter's just like talking it out. He's trying to think through it. He's trying to understand all of it. And in that space, he gets this question in his mind of, wait, hold on. Elijah's supposed to come, right? And the scripture says in Malachi, when Elijah comes, he's going to restore everything. That doesn't sound like death. That doesn't sound like sacrifice. That doesn't sound like crucifixion. It doesn't sound like denial it sounds like everything is put back together and so here is now elijah like maybe maybe jesus again is wrong maybe there's a place here where jesus is missing some things because i'm thinking through all the passages and the promises and the things of the old testament what peter is doing in this moment is remembering the very last words of the old testament that god's going to send one like elijah who's going to come and restore all things and so again i think he's still stuck wondering is there a way out of this without death what Jesus answers to him is, oh, no, no, Elijah does totally come. And actually, he's already come. He's John the Baptist. And remember what happened to John the Baptist? Here's this messengers that actually came to, to tell people to return, to be restored. It was a call to repentance. Remember what happened to John the Baptist? We learned in just a, a chapter before this, he was actually killed. So the middle bread of this club sandwich is another declaration that the way the mission of God goes forward is through death. Yes, Elijah has come, it says, and it was John the Baptist, and he actually went this way of death. Followers of Jesus, there is no way around this. The good news is that God is glorious enough to hold you in the middle of all your fears and all your concerns and all your insecurities and all the places where you're like, man, I don't know if I can do this. But, but over and over and over again, we see in the Scriptures a call to self-denial. There is no salvation apart from dying to yourself. Jesus is desperate for you to understand that. So he's going to show that with his glory. He's going to teach it clearly. He's going to reference John the Baptist in this moment. And he's actually now going to show us how our dependence is really an advantage to us. But hopefully you're tracking so far. In this call to death, we needed some encouragement and hope. So the glory of God gives us hope. But it's not to get around death, it's to actually go through it in dependent sort of ways. So here's the second part of that sandwich then, in verse 14. They come down the mountain, and they come to this crowd, 
And a man comes up to him and he kneels before him and says, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly. And then we hear it's not just epilepsy or seizures, they're actually something demonic. These seizures actually cause him to fall into fire and into water. There's a destructive spirit that seeks to destroy this little boy. And I brought him to your disciples, this is in verse 16, and they couldn't heal him. And this is kind of contrast to earlier in Matthew where he sends them out two by two and gives them authority over all the diseases, over the demonic power. So this is a, a puzzling scene. Like, why could they not actually heal? Why could they not cast out this demon? And if you put this story in context, where the disciples are struggling to embrace the full understanding of the need to actually die, I think one of the things that's going on here is the disciples are trying to act in their own power to their own narrative in these places and on their own effort their own self-will their own desire their own energies they're trying to do ministry they're trying to do the things that God's called them to do but they're doing it in their own strength and Jesus calls it faithless and he calls it twisted he says there's a distortion to this it's not that they don't believe in God at all but they have a misplaced faith in themselves or their own power again I think the theme here of you don't actually have to die you don't have to give everything over you can actually leverage some power and get what you actually want I think if that's a theme that's going on that Jesus is trying to unearth in us it would make sense that what's wrong with the disciples is not that they didn't do it right or they didn't didn't say the right words it's that they were hoping in the wrong thing Again, Peter's displaying for us this idea that you could be saved without the full cost and sacrifice. And so we have in this moment now, he says, the faithless and twisted generation. How long am I going to be with you? How long do I have to tell you clearly what it's about and you not listen? How am I to bear with you? Bring him here. So Jesus rebukes the demon, cast him out. The boy is healed instantly. In contrast to their inability We see Jesus instantly heal them. The disciples come to Jesus privately and say, okay, what's the deal? Why couldn't we cast them out? We've done it before. There's been other places where we've done this. Why could we not in this moment? And then he says something that is both really helpful and a little bit confusing. He says, because of your little faith. Okay, the question here hangs on what does he mean by little faith? And I was trained early on to hear this means that you don't have enough faith you need to do more you don't have enough of what you need if you had more of it then you could actually pull it off so the answer then is do more try harder be more committed be more uh, be more faithful pray more fast more do more things to get more power that's the way I've understood this text I don't know how you've heard it before but when it says the reason why you couldn't was because your faith was too small the logic is well then get a bigger faith unless the whole point of this text is You actually have to die and you don't have anything that you need to actually get you into the next life. If the whole point of this is actually not towards power but towards self-denial, then maybe this idea of little faith is like an impoverished faith, some scholars would say. It's like a distorted faith. It's like a a weak faith because it's a misplaced faith. It's, It's twisted up a little bit. It's faith in the wrong thing. It's faith actually in yourself, which would be consistent with what we see Peter wrestling with over and over again. Hey, I'm actually going to keep Jesus from having to suffer. I'm actually going to stay here in this space of glorification. I don't actually have to do the things that Jesus is calling me to. So I can actually act in my own power in the world around me and see the kingdom advance through my own efforts. He says, no, no, that's the wrong kind of faith. That's, that's too little of faith because it's in yourself. 
It's a misplaced, impoverished faith. Not so much that it's weak about your faith in God. It's a misplaced little faith because it's in yourself. Because he says in the next section, For truly I say to you, if you have faith like the grain of a mustard seed, which we've learned is like super small. So he can't be saying that what you need is just too small. Get more of it than you can do it. What he's saying is you have the wrong kind of faith. You're still thinking that through your power, through, through your own glory, through your own efforts, you can advance the kingdom. But I'm telling you, if you had just small enough faith in the right glorious one and in his methods and means to actually save, then you could say to this mountain, move, and it would move because nothing would be impossible for you. The contrast between something really small like a seed and something really huge like a mountain is this beautiful metaphor to say it doesn't matter how big your faith is it's what your faith is in that makes all the difference he can't be saying do more of this because the mustard seed idea is that by definition it's really really small so the glory of god from the first story is really hopeful and then this story is super hopeful because what it says is your dependence is your advantage the degree you see that all you have is a little bitty faith in the God of the universe. All you have is a little bitty faith in the right one who can make things happen. All you have is a little bit of faith in the God who actually can move mountains himself. That kind of faith will not just save you, it will help you overcome whatever feels impossible in this life. It's not do more, try harder. That would be the opposite of what he's been teaching. And he's going to cap it again. He said he's going to come and die. That's the way that we have hope, which is this weak declaration of our utter dependence and our inability to save ourselves. But the one who says he's going to die has all the power that we need and trust in him, even if it feels super small, even if it's really feeble, even if you can like barely see it, but it's put in the right person. It's faith in the right thing, not twisted and distorted, putting faith in something else. It actually is in the right place then and only then can you actually be saved, redeemed, healed. And God answers those prayers as you move towards him in faith. That to me was massive. I think for like years, the way I grew up, my own pride, my own insecurity, my struggle with shame has set me up to constantly hear do more, try harder. And again, I think it would fit kind of our, our human tendency because if I did more and try harder and then I accomplished something, then I would get the glory of that. But if it's actually faith that's really, really small, I don't get any praise for that. I don't get any glory for that. I don't get any credit for that. It's the one that my faith is in that gets all the glory and all the credit, which is what that previous story is about. Jesus being the glorious one, not his disciples. We're actually seeing over and over again the, the frailness and the faultiness and, and the inconsistency of the disciples. What we see is the steadiness, the beauty, the glory, the confidence, the strength of Jesus, even in his own death, which is enough to accomplish our salvation. I don't know how you've encountered this passage in the past, but, but I want to say, in contrast to the glory on one side, is the dependence of his disciples on the other side, which puts you in a position to actually empty yourself and trust Christ for everything that you need. I think that is incredibly good news. And we should just talk for a second about what do we do with this idea here of a promise that we could move mountains? That seems kind of crazy. And maybe like when I'm on this 14er, I'm thankful nobody was praying the mountain would move unless they were praying the mountain would get shorter. Like the mountain would get shorter so I get down faster. But like you know, you know this doesn't mean 
literally, if you pray the right prayers and have enough faith, even in God Himself, then the physical mountains move. Right? It's a metaphor for sure. But there's something about the contrast between something really small and something really big that says to us, even when your faith is little, like the overwhelming mountain of your suffering, God will get you through that. The overwhelming mountain of the the marriage that's in shambles, of the child that doesn't believe, of the infertility, of the unwanted sexual desire, of the places where the job's not coming through, the places where you feel overwhelmed, that mountain that you look at and you're like, man, there's no way I can overcome that. Even just the smallest faith in the right place, Jesus is saying, is enough to get you through that. What God calls His people to is not to be amazing. It's not even to be strong. It's to be dependent because the wrong kind of faith is faith in yourself which is what i think the disciples are trying to do to cast out this demon but faith in god himself is the one that actually gets you through these intense moments so even just saying like in a mustard seed size like lord i don't understand why this is happening but i'm going to trust you is the kind of faith that gets you through what feels just wildly overwhelming And maybe you notice in this text that here's a little footnote at the end of verse 20. And maybe you've heard this passage before in different translations or or different versions. And you're wondering, wait a second, doesn't it talk about there are kinds of demons that only come out through prayer and fasting? Aren't we missing something here? Doesn't he actually say if you would pray more and you would fast more, then something bigger would happen? Do you see that in in verse 20, that little number four, if you're in the ASV text? If you drop that down, it says that there's, there's variance, which is kind of an interesting idea. Let me explain it in just a second. But there are other manuscripts that say this kind of demon only comes out through prayer and fasting. All right, at the risk of totally losing you at minute 34, let me try to explain what's going on. We have like tons and tons and tons and tons and tons and tons, and tons of copies of manuscripts from the ancient world. We actually have so many, and they're good copies that when we see discrepancies or differences we can compare them and say wait a second this one comes much later i bet you that was a scribe who made a little note in the margin and that got inserted into the text and then the guy copied that one copied that one copied that one and copied them all the way out what he's saying is when you go back to the earliest most reliable manuscripts you don't see this reference to prayer and fasting but it got inserted in somewhere along the way and kind of planted into our hearts there's other passages that talk about the power of prayer and fasting. So it's not like a a unbiblical idea, but what he's saying is we're actually so confident that this wasn't in the text, we're going to make a little note here and pull it out. That's my textual criticism idea. If you can talk about that more, let me know. But essentially, it actually means you can have more confidence when you hold the Bible because scholars do stuff like this to say, hey, we're going to pull out what tradition, like in the New New King James Version, the King James Version, we're going to pull that out from the 1500s and we're going to Say, actually, it's not the most reliable text. What is the most reliable is to remove that little phrase. Okay, however, as I was praying, I thought I was just brilliant on my own because I was reading through this and I thought, hey, what he's talking about here actually feels like the call from Jesus to pray and fast. Totally forgetting that subconsciously I've read it in other versions and translations. So wasn't that brilliant? Actually, when I study the text, I remove all the footnotes. So I just kind of look at the passage. So I got there to this variant, but it took me quite a while kind of in my own study. I got to a space, though, it was Friday morning. I'm like, hey, there's this call to pray and fast. Okay, I've heard that as if you pray harder and fast longer, then you can leverage power to get God to do what you want. But what if prayer and fasting are declarations of your dependence? What if fasting is actually, 
I can't make this happen. I'm hungry for you to work. And it's a declaration not of your power and strength, but of you emptying yourself and saying, I am utterly dependent. And what if prayer isn't about you leveraging power? It's about you acknowledging, I don't have the power. And actually, I can't do this. I think when you pray, you're saying multiple things. One, you're saying, I need help. Two, you're saying, God, I think you care about this. And three, you're saying, God, I think you have the power to do something about this. So the call to pray and fast is not a call to leverage and man up or woman up and do more. It's to say again, admit your dependence. It's to put your faith in the one that you're praying to, the one that you're saying, I'm hungry for. So even if you've misunderstood this text or you've thought that prayer and fasting was like the the tools that you use to move the mountain, because I think a lot of us have gotten tripped up when we've prayed and things haven't happened the way we prayed for them. Because if you think this is about your faith being too small and you need bigger faith and you pray for healing and it doesn't happen, the logic is something's wrong with you and you failed. Maybe you don't ever deal with that, but I know in my own heart with the way shame and performance and pride and fear kind of mingle inside my soul. When I pray for something and it doesn't happen, I'm tempted to see I must have been deficient and done something wrong. But if this text is saying, even little mustard seed side faith that's displayed in things like emptying ourselves with fasting and crying out to God in prayer, if if that's what actually moves mountains, then what God's able to do is sustain me through the spaces where I don't get what I'm praying for, and he meets me in that spot. He gets me through that mountain. He actually proverbially moves that mountain for me in ways that I can actually endure. It's not so much that my faith is so small, he's not doing what I need him to do. It's that the faith I'm putting in him can get me through the thing that I'm asking him to change that he's not changing. Mustard seed side faith is the kind of faith that says, I don't understand this, but I'm still going to trust you. It's super small. It's really small and tiny. It's not elaborate. It's small. It's the kind of faith that when Paul says, God, would you remove this thorn from my flesh? When his mountain was a thorn in his flesh from 2 Corinthians, and he asked a bunch of times to God to remove it, and God says, I'm not going to remove it, but instead I'm going to sustain you with my grace. It'll be sufficient for you. Mustard size seed faith holds on to the promises of God even when the things you want to happen don't happen and they're able to sustain you through these incredible moments of pain and overwhelming odds because the dependence that you have in those spaces is actually to your advantage hey that's a ton to throw at you I'm trying to unravel textual criticism and like the way shame is played into our ideas and the the embedded idea of our own pride and power that disciples are wrestling with that would flip on us and overwhelm us and actually capsize on us to think that if I just did more and tried harder, then God would bless me and do what I needed him to do. Friends, that kind of understanding, Jesus says, is twisted. It's distorted. It doesn't have enough power to actually hold you. The only thing that will hold you is faith in the one who is glorious, but who dies in your place. And to follow him by emptying yourself and taking up your cross and denying yourself is the only way to actually have life. And faith in that God, in that kind of way, moves the biggest mountain that you have, which is your sin. Which is what separates you from God, which is what actually would bear the wrath of God. It's a little mustard seaside faith that doesn't even have to understand all of it, but is rightly placed in Jesus that actually then moves that mountain of the wrath of God so you can actually be his daughter and his son. You can be redeemed 
and healed. Jesus just kind of closes this section again with a reminder of the gospel. The Son of Man is going to be delivered in the hands of men. They will kill him, but he's going to be raised on the third day. The glory comes after the death. The resurrection life is what is most glorious, but it comes through the grave before it's raised. And that gives us incredible hope that in our weakness and our dependence, the one who is glorious in the universe actually died in our place in such a way to make a way for us to be forgiven and set free, which is the good news of the Christian message. And before you just rush past that and go, yeah, I got it, put yourself in the seats of these disciples who are struggling to understand the implication of it and give yourself permission to ask as we prepare to take communion, are there places where I'm struggling to trust him like this? Are there places where I'm still putting faith in myself? I'm putting faith in my own power. I'm putting faith in my own ability to kind of manage and accomplish what I think I need. Would you use communion as a Christian just to ask and examine, is it possible that I have some twisted places in my faith where I'm still looking to my own reliance as a way to actually rescue and be saved? And would you ask God to actually speak to you in that space and begin to heal you? Because your dependence, not your power, is your advantage. When Jesus showed on the cross his death, apparently like dying in ways that actually would show some sort of weakness, We see in that moment the most power, the most glory, the most beauty, the most amazing thing that we could ever imagine actually happened as the God himself died in our place to make a way for us to be forgiven and free. That is the hope of the Christian message. That's what we celebrate in communion. So let me tee us up then. If you're a follower of Jesus, when you take this little piece of bread and you dip it in this cup, you're saying, I have no hope apart from this. And what you're going to hold is small, maybe even like a mustard seed, but it's, it's enough to actually rescue and save you because of who your faith is in. If you're not a follower of Christ, what you're going to watch in this moment is people saying, I can't save myself. I can't do enough to rescue myself. I can't be strong enough. In that spot, they're actually turning to God to be the one who rescues and redeems. So if you're not in that space where you're trusting him, there's some prayers in the back of your bulletin there that would give you some examples of prayers just sit in your seat and ask God to speak to you. And maybe as you're asking him to speak to you, you could ask the question, what else are you looking to? Where are you finding glory? What are you trying to leverage for power? And is it possible that you don't have the power to actually save yourself? That you actually couldn't pull it all together and make it all happen? Would you in that space actually be open to the idea that the most glorious one knows what you needed and ask him to actually communicate that to you? Let me pray for us. We'll take communion and then we'll ask God to speak. Jesus, thank you for who you are. Speak to us now both through the elements of communion as we remember your broken body and shed blood. Three times in this text you tell us that you were going to die. And we see the struggle to actually place our faith there. So in the moment now, would you grant us faith to believe that what you did on the cross is enough? And our small little faith in what you did is enough to rescue and to save us. So would you grant faith in the room? Would you draw people to yourself? And would you give us... Um, capacity to wrestle with where we're struggling to trust you all.